This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Recovery Radio. I'm your host, Steve Martirano. We hope you'll join us uh, each episode as we talk to experts in the behavioral health field. The intent is to foster diverse and meaningful conversations on substance abuse and mental health. That's what Recovery Radio is all about. Uh, we are uh, we are a week out of uh, from the Veterans Day um, service and memorial that we we have every year, of course, and we wanted to do yet another program on veterans and the kind of unique problems uh, they're facing with regard to their mental health and or substance abuse um, uh, in in that in that context. So that's what the program is going to be about today. And as we mentioned in our introduction, we reach out to experts in, in the field of behavioral health. It, and today is no exception to that. Uh, with us is a, a, a first-time visitor to Recovery Radio. He's working now for retreat as a clinician. And uh, we want to say hello to Tom Murphy, who joins us today. Hi, Tom. How are you? I am good, Steve. Thank you. Thank you for your time. I appreciate that. Um, t- uh, there's a, there's a, a, a slew of uh, statistics uh, that... Try to measure the the problem we're talking about with regard to veterans, but before we get into very deep into all of that, because the, the the numbers are shocking, of course, let's find out a little bit about you and your background. How how, uh, how long have you been in this field, and where did you start? I started uh, working with adolescents in what, October of 1994, and uh, did that for about five years, and then went on to a uh, oh a codependency family program. I was a night counselor there. And then uh, went back to went to Temple to get my master's degree. I uh, went back at the age of fifty. Yeah. And it's if anybody's fifty, go back to school. It is fun. I tell young people who are in college, take your time getting out. As long as I'm not paying for it, that's <laughs> right. Stay in school as long as you can. So you went back to uh, to get your master's. Then, but what what was your initial impetus in going into the field of, of mental health counseling? Uh, initially, it was. Uh, Went through a ho- went through a horrible divorce. <laughs> Is that right? Yes, um, and uh, ended up seeking treatment. Um, it was just like total world crush, and it just like had to get put back together. Came out the other end okay, apparently. Absolutely, it gave you it gave you it gave you a career, as a matter of fact. Yes. So you're you're also a veteran, right? Yes, sir. Tell us about your military background. Um, out of high school, I went to junior college, and I had a blazing 197 grade point. Okay. And I decided, <laughs> this is not going to work. Um, <laughs> and ended up talking to uh, the Marine recruiter in, in uh, the little town in Illinois, Dixon, Illinois, and went into the Marine Corps. I was in with the end of the draftees, so it was a two-year hitch. Um, my goal was to get in and get out and get my college paid for um, while in the Marine Corps, I ended up being a ceremonial guard um, in Washington, D.C., home of the Commandant. Mm-hmm. It, uh, was, uh, it was interesting duty, and it, uh, it did kind of accelerate my drinking. <laughs> it, well, that's, that's interesting. Even, even, even in the uh, non-lethal portion of the military, there's, there's still that yes. uh, warrior ethic and, and all of that. Uh, so we're going to get into that more when it leads to trouble at the other end. So you began with adolescence, and when did you move to the adult uh, population with problems? Oh, that was with uh, the family program up at Karen. I was a night counselor, 
I'd have typically about 40 clients and do educational, psychoeducational lectures and different things. From there, I went to outpatient um, because going to grad school, my goal was to be basically to work uh, at private practice. And I ended up being the sole clinician in uh, White Deer Run's outpatient program in Harrisburg and found out very quickly that I do not like working alone. I need to have peers and other staff around that uh, can just help ground me when I get uh, mm-hmm. a little overwhelmed with the work. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's what got you out of retirement, right? You were, you were retired at one uh, point, right? I retired January 2018, but I had also worked at uh, Conewago Wernersville, which was a prison transition program. Um, inmates were getting two and three years shaved off their sentence if they would do 90 days in treatment. And some of them said, no, send me back. I'm not doing this. Um, and then I went to uh, Gadenzia in Coatesville. I was uh, actually taken into Westchester as a clinical supervisor. Mm-hmm. After about two years, I decided, I don't like this. Can I please be a counselor again? And they, they let me go to another office and be a therapist. You see, so uh, that brings us to uh, retreat. You're, you're, here yes. now, you're here now three months, only three months, right? Yes, a little over three months. Um, yeah, I retired uh, January 2018, and me and my beautiful little dog, Nellie, we were having a wonderful life. And then I saw an ad for uh, a second shift therapist, and I was like, ooh, I like second shift. And everything just fell into place. It's just like kind of like I think a gentle nudge from a universal life force or whatever. So uh, tell us a little bit about a second shift. That's what are those hours and what goes on during a second shift at a okay. mental health or behavioral health facility? Um, typically, you come in, we have a staff meeting. We're first thing off with the, the, the clinical therapists. Um, I'm the, the second shift guy for three primary therapists during the day. And I'm the go-to guy for all the clients. I think I've got probably about 27 or 30 right now. Um, the population changes a lot. So it's always new people, the changing dynamic, and trying to bring the group together. Yeah. Um, we do a 3.30 psychoeducational group, which runs an hour and 15 minutes. And then uh, we take a break. We go to dinner. Then we do our campus connection, which is like a rundown of the day, and it uh, it brings the whole community together. It's it's uh, sometimes you don't you miss people and you don't get to see them all the time, and you see them there. Are, are all of your clients right now, all the patients you're dealing with right now, residential um, patients? Yes, it's all residential yeah. inpatient. Yeah, um, a lot of them anywhere from eight to thirty days, sixty, ninety days. Are they all veterans? No. Um, small percentage, probably, I would guess about 10%, which is about the same as the normal population, about 10% veterans. Yeah. I know that when, uh, when the retreat uh, moved from strictly a substance abuse a treatment facility to a behavioral health uh, facility, they saw an immediate uh, increase in th- their veteran population. I think there are more veterans now uh, uh, in the uh, in the uh, residential program in Lancaster County than there have been in a very long time. So naturally, you would be seeing more of them, and that's what this program is going to focus on: the unique circumstances of uh, of their mental health and substance abuse issues, and uh, whether or not 
specific kinds of treatment have to be applied to this population. So let's let's talk about the guys you know and that you deal with as a clinician who are veterans. Are they? Uh, give me an age, a sort of age bracket we're talking about. Oh, I think t- about twenty six all the way up into the eighties. So, so you're seeing guys from who who were Second World War uh, veterans or Korean War veterans? Korean, anyway. yeah. So that second, I think in Pennsylvania, the last World War II veteran has passed. Yeah, yeah. Um, Vietnam era is heavily uh, uh, heavily um, in in uh, in attendance in this program. I understand. Actually, right? not. No, is that no, right? No, it's more Gulf War. It's the Gulf War. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. God, I'm interested in that because I wonder. I don't know whether you, you know you, this would just be. A, your, your personal opinion and observation, but those two those two conflicts and the ongoing situation in the Middle East seems to have generated more problems for, for more servicemen than the post-Vietnam era. Am I wrong about that? Diagnostic tools have gotten better, and you know, as the the medical community gets more savvy with with diagnosing, yeah things become more evident. I mean, in Vietnam, they were saying 20% of all the veteran or um, active duty people were addicted to heroin, and they were scared to death that when they came back, there, aren't, there weren't enough treatment beds. Well, what they found out was about 96% of them just quit. They were no longer, their life was not in danger, and they basically reconnected with their families, their work, their social groups. Mm-hmm. and You mean they just stopped using, they just abusing stopped drugs? Using. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, of course, what would be overlooked in that context was the reason they were doing heroin in a combat situation. Oh, yeah. Because when I guess when you... I, I'm a, of that generation. I had friends who came out of Vietnam uh, and broken, but, but, but we didn't notice... They were different, but we didn't right. notice that there was anything, you know... Uh, pathological about this. They were just different guys that come out of right. this experience. So and we've gotten better at going something happened over there, right? Yes. I mean, the incidence was probably about the same in terms of injuries, right. traumatic brain injuries and substance abuse. Um, when I was in the Marine Corps, I think substance abuse was at about 10%. They have zero tolerance for that today. And it just like the numbers have dropped radically. Yeah. Uh, when you say they have zero tolerance in the military now for substance abuse, they're not drug testing people who, who are active duty, are they? Do they do that routinely, or do they look just look for the signs now? I think they would just look for the signs. I'm not really sure on how they do that. It's been... I got out in 1976. Yeah, a few years ago. <laughs> uh, well, with regard to things like post-traumatic stress, which we're going to talk about at length today... Uh, we are now more easily, that's more easily diagnosed now than it would have been in the mm-hmm. Vietnam era, correct? Yes, it is. Um, they actually screen for that prior to them getting out. Oh, they do? I mean, they do a transit. There's a transition program that they participate in to deal with stress and to, to help reintegrate them into the community or back into their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom uh, Tom Murphy is our guest. He is a, a clinician uh, dealing with, among other people, veterans who have both substance abuse and mental health issues. 
uh, some of which may have predated their military service, uh, but, m- but much of it uh, came as a result of, of what they experienced in combat, particularly in the most recent uh, conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. We'll get into some of the numbers that we're talking about and some of the techniques that are being employed by people like Tom Murphy as we continue our discussion. This is Recovery Radio. Please stay with us. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Steve Martorano, my name. Another in a couple of series of programs we're doing here on Recovery Radio regarding uh, veterans and uh, the mental health issues they're facing, along with substance abuse problems as well. Uh, our guest in the studio is Tom Murphy. Tom has been in the field of, of, of behavioral health, mental health, and counseling for many, many years now, and recently out of retirement uh, to come back, answer the call again. He's also a veteran of the uh, United States Marine Corps, Tom Semper Fi. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Love to say that. Confused people who think I might have been a Marine. <laughs> the least likely guy to have done that. Anyway, um, we, we, uh, we are glad Tom has taken time out of his busy day to join us to talk about this. So uh, what, what sort of things are we seeing from the veterans that are from you know way back and today? Are they the same kinds of things? What kinds of problems do these people face? They basically pick biggest problem is trying to reintegrate into the community. They don't know where they fit, and they don't feel understood. One of the biggest hurdles is, you're not a veteran. You don't know what I feel. Um, I was at a, a workshop down in Tennessee, and there were 45 veterans there, and I was not, I was not a combat veteran, and that had been my biggest fear, that I wouldn't be accepted by the group, but it was absolutely wrong accepted fully because I had served my time and you are part of the family. Right, right. Um, we run into that with treatment providers that are not military. The veterans hold back because they have a lot of stuff. I've seen veterans hold on to stuff for 10, 20 years and never disclose it. And it eats away at them and it is one of the major reasons they turn to substance use disorder. Yeah. Uh, they share this withholding uh, with uh, people who may may not have been in the military but have had substance abuse problems. Uh, that sense that you don't you can't know what I'm going what I'm That's going right. what I'm going through. In in addition to that, they also run headlong. In, so well, before we get into that, so so we're, integration back into society is very yes. difficult. I remember there's one it's a wonderful scene in a terrific movie called uh, Hurt Locker. Yes. Where 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 the uh, principal character is this guy who diffuses bombs and it's incredibly dangerous but he thrives on on the tension of it all. Uh and then uh he's rotated out at one point in the movie and they go from him being in combat and diffusing bombs and seeing people blown up uh, to walking down a supermarket aisle and he. This is the first place we see the character out of position, and confused and anxious. When he's in combat, he seems to be operating on an auto, kind of an automatic level. When you talk about right. the transition, it's that's pretty shocking for them, isn't it? Absolutely. And the training they go through is to do the job, no matter what. Why that guy is out defusing bombs? He probably has half a dozen or more people providing security for him personally. You get out, you don't have that same overwatch feeling that they're, they're, they're watching out, they're protecting me. So, so in the context of mi- military behavior, um, 
you're, you're trained to do the job, uh-huh. and you're trained also to have a kind of tunnel vision about the job. This is yes. the job I have. This is what my concentration is. So everything else can be walled off. Including your feelings. Including the way you feel. When you get back in the in the real world, the regular world, um, the regular world's not playing by those rules. No, and it's very hard to reopen that box. I mean, some of them don't know what a feeling is, you know. How are you feeling today? Oh, I feel good. Um, no. How about mad, glad, sad, scared, lonely? A feeling word. Yeah, yeah. So, so the psychological impact is probably uh, easiest to see, um, but there are there are other problems that they have in conjunction with their military uh, service that have to do with with physical um, injuries. C- can you talk yes. about a couple of those? Um, I've got an, I've worked with a number of veterans that have been rotated out because of injuries. Um, it might be a training accident or it might be a, it, it can be like a torn up knee or shoulder, things like that and they they basically say your service is no longer needed and then they go through horrible depression because um, you know I, I was in for 10 years and then they just told me to go and it's just like you know, they were planning on being there for life. That was going to be their career. Now what do they do? And it's just like, you're not wanted. Um, you transition to a civilian job, and maybe because of a traumatic brain injury, you you have physical symptoms that make you unsafe in the workplace. Yeah. Uh, talk about the traumatic brain injury, because I think this is, this is not a new thing, obviously, but it is certainly... I, I'm guessing a, 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 a new a new diag, diag, uh, diagnosis that people are now t- being aware of. So it doesn't mean have, being hit by something in the head. It, it can mean a lot of different things, can it? Oh, it could be just the concussive backlash from a, an explosion. I mean, if you and I are sitting here and uh, and something explodes on the on the desk, we could both have a TBI without ever being touched. But the concussion of that causes the brain to rattle around in our skull and causes damage. So what? What? how, how is that diagnosed? Uh, someone comes to you. Someone comes to a place like Retreat. And, and they, may, they may be here primarily because they've got a substance abuse problem. When do you begin or how, how quickly do you begin looking at underlying or co-occurring problems? I mean, somebody may be medicating, self-medicating themselves, right. not for emotional reasons, but because they have an actual injury, right? Right. And assessment begins day one, but most of the vets we get have already been assessed um, through the VA. They know what's going on and have dealt with this stuff for a number of years. So, they, so when you get them, you've got a pretty clear roadmap of what of what the problem may be. Yes, but we're well, going to take the physical. The physical, picture. yes. Yeah. Um, let, before we're going to take the break here now, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the. The self-medicating piece, the extent to which the people you're you're seeing and other people in general have both issues going on. Uh, it's called co-occurring uh, situations regarding veterans and their military service. Our guest is Tom Murphy. We have more with Tom on Recovery Radio. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Steve Martorano with you. We're here uh, each episode. We're talking about behavioral health, and that's a broad, uh, broad topic. It uh, covers a, a multitude of psychiatric or, or, or uh, emotional uh, disorders, some in, with, uh, in conjunction with uh, substance abuse very often. They are co-occurring um, situations. Uh, we're talking about veterans in particular on this episode, and we'll get back to that with our guest Tom Murphy straight ahead. But a reminder about retreat behavioral health. Uh, they are, um, you know, our underwriters for this program, and we're always grateful for them. We want to remind you that they sponsor the program as an informational and educational tool, although they have helped many, many, many people. They're not here to tell you they're the only way to get yourself straightened out. But they're one of the best, I can tell you that. Whatever questions or comments you have, if you if you're, um, don't know what's going on in your life, don't know whether the care you're getting now is sufficient, um, just call them. They'll answer questions for you. If they can help you, terrific. They've helped a lot of people. But they will answer your questions. I guarantee you that. So a reminder, a retreat behavioral health at 855-859-8808. That's 855-859-8808. From their um, Lancaster uh, facility, our guest is clinician Tom Murphy. He is also a retired military uh, uh, Marine Corps uh, veteran, and he's with us discussing his the group of veterans he's dealing with right now, some uh, interesting stories about what, what those guys are facing. So, Tom, let's talk about this co-occurring situation mm-hmm. where they're both psychological or um, or mental issues that go hand in hand with substance abuse. What are you seeing among the vets you're dealing with? Well, I've got a, a, a dear friend, and he's he'd been out. He was Gulf War vet, and he'd been out for ten years, and his uh, traumatic brain injury kicked in. I mean, debilitating headaches, couldn't remember things, and it just like he got it checked out got the diagnosis and is getting treatment for it. I looked at him and I said, Billy, why, why don't you get a dog? And he's like, what? I said, a PTSD dog. You can get a dog from the military. They train them for you. Well, he's got a chocolate lab now that is just the most wonderful dog in the universe. And it, and it works for him? It works. Yes, it keeps him calm. Um, it... Uh, you know, a lot they, of people they specifically. Yeah, you know, a lot of people uh, hear about service dogs. I mean, we're, we're all familiar with do- uh, seeing eye dogs, mm-hmm. uh, but but that concept of a dog that can help or an animal that can help actually yes. has been has been broadened considerably considerably over the last twenty years or so. And I think there's still a kind of uh, not not a prejudice about it, but a, but a, a kind of suspicion about. Come on, what are we talking here? How could a dog help right. somebody who's got traumatic brain uh, damage or or post-traumatic stress. What's going on? Just a calming influence? It's a calming influence, but the dog is trained to recognize physical cues. I have a friend, her son is on the spectrum of autism, and he has a service dog. Um, When he starts to get anxious and his anxiety starts to kick before he acts out, his dog comes up and pushes against his legs and just nuzzles his hand and... That's a calming thing. That's that's his signal to, oh, it's happening again. And the same thing with veterans. Um, the veterans' animals become a, um, what's an unconditional love relationship? And it's, uh, I think, integral to healing. I, I guess it's also a part of the reconnecting, reconnecting to something outside of their 
outside of themselves. Outside of themselves. Absolutely. Right? Uh, let's talk about a couple of other things that may be going on with veterans that have contributed to their not only mental health but their substance abuse problems. Pain management would, would be Absolutely. one. A lot of these guys get out and have serious injuries that require uh, pain management, for instance. Yes. There was a problem with that for a while. Yes. I mean, you're out in the field, you're 180 pounds, and you're carrying 80 pounds to 100 pounds of equipment. It's going to take a toll on your knees, your back, and your, your hips. Um, docs would prescribe the opiates, um, oxycodone and Percocets and that, but then as they take these things, the pain increases over time. So the dose has to come up right. over time. Mm-hmm. And so they're over-prescribing it uh, for all the good right. reasons, but these guys are now wind up seriously addicted to this stuff. And then when they get cut off from the dock, then heroin becomes an option. And now today with the heroin, they're lacing it with fentanyl. I've had clients in and out of the military that use heroin, and fentanyl shows up in their blood or their urine screens mm-hmm. and it's just like you need to quit doing this you're going to die oh no I know what I'm doing right right. I mean I had to at one point I got a uh, state parole officer involved with one of my clients and we were going to lock him up because it was the only way to save him well he died before we got to it uh, is alcohol the overwhelming um, choice of over medicating themselves among the veterans you've seen is that what they usually typically uh, it's alcohol typically and, and then it can be other substances um you know the, the day of the just the the stone cold alcoholic is is kind of gone because there's always other substances involved well you're you're, you're a veteran i know you don't realize you're not a combat veteran but you, you certainly understand the the, mili- uh, the, the uh, military ethos that exists yes. particularly a marine uh, they may have invented this thing, the kind of warrior ethic, the the behavior that when you're introduced to a military context is almost considered part of it. And and drinking is, mm-hmm. is, is one of those keys, isn't it? Absolutely. It's the social lubricant. I mean, we're trained by society to be that way. I'm actually kind of lucky. I've had friends in the Marine Corps come up and they say, What's wrong with you? Why are you not like us? And I said, that's easy. I'm a man that was a Marine. You're a Marine that is a man. And it's just like the indoctrination and the, the and, and program. Mar- and, mar- and Marines can drink and hold their liquor. Oh, and, absolutely. In fact, in fact, it's it's kind of an unwritten rule. Well, when I was in, it basically we had to, had, had a club right on base and... It was basically government-subsidized alcohol. It was cheap. You know, it, well, you know, you know, you certainly understand how something like that could make sense in the context of unit cohesion and what, what they're trying to accomplish in the military and uh, the effects of which um, don't become apparent until later on. Uh, uh, what about things like insomnia, uh, uh, sleep problems? Or, uh, oh, and those are all can be associated or go along with the TB, traumatic brain injuries, TBIs, or even the post-traumatic stress. It can be depression. I mean, sleep disorders. Sleep disorders. Um, I've had clients that uh, will wake up in the middle of the night or wake up the next morning, they look at their wife, and the wife has a black eye. And it's like, oh, my God, what happened? And she looks at him and says, you hit me last night. And that I've had clients come into treatment because of just that situation. 
Let's talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, what, it's one of those phrases that's now tossed around as though we all understand exactly what it means. Mm-hmm. There is no really one definition of what it is, right? There's a number of definitions, and it can be a number of different things. It's it's typically about a horrific event that you're, you witness, that you're actually close to, and how it impacts the brain, um, the plasticity of the brain. Once you're exposed to trauma, it starts to change the way your brain is wired. And it's just like you start to think differently. Is is the part of that rewiring process pushing down on the memory of the trauma? Uh, In other words, ignoring it or denying it and looking for other reasons why I feel tense all the time or I'm angry all the time or I can't sleep and never making the connection that it has to do with your military service? And it's difficult to do. It's, it depends on what's going on in their life. You have to do a, a complete and thorough history to find out. There's a um, the ACEs test. It's the Accumulated Childhood Survey. Kaiser Permanente and uh, the Center for Disease Control did this with 17,000 people, and there are like 10 questions. And if you have four yeses on this, you typically are going to be engaged in a drug or alcohol problem, you're going to have heart disease, um, you're going to have some difficulty down the road. Um, and, and when that occurs, mm-hmm. you, you are considered to have uh, post-traumatic stress. No, no. Those are the, the things that set you up for drinking and all the things that you could get PTSD. PTSD, let's use 9-11 for an example. Mm-hmm. Um, People that were there, severe post-traumatic stress disorder, can't sleep every time they close their eyes, it reoccurs. Um, I contend that that was televised live worldwide. And it's like... So a lot of people got traumatized by that. Yes. Well, and there's a secondary traumatization. But, you know, in a classroom of school children, elementary ed, they're watching these towers fall and 6,000 people die. And that doesn't ha- that doesn't leave a mark. <laughs> yeah, we probably haven't seen uh, the, all of the results of that. Oh no, I know it's been a while since it um, happened. I was working in inpatient when that happened, and it changed the way we all started to look at everything around us. There's a suitcase in a corner. Whose is it? <gasps> mm. um, there was a, a psychologist in Reading that actually did a group to help people with some secondary traumatization, a.k.a. maybe post-traumatic stress disorder, after 9-11. And I went to that group for about six months, and it just helped. You know, we we are now a a full generation or more uh, with uh, with more and more women in the military than ever before, certainly in my lifetime and yours as well, uh, and in combat uh, positions yes. now. Are, are they as susceptible to these problems of mental health and substance abuse as their, as their um, men colleagues? Probably a higher, a higher percentage. There were, there's fewer women in the military, but their trauma can be... It, there can be more trauma. Um, typically, a lot of women in the military have been exposed to sexual assault. Um, I think they call it, what, MST, Military Sexual Assault. Mm-hmm. It has its own little acronym now. But because of this coming from someone you see every day, they're in a position of power, and they have perpetrated upon you. And it's just like, <gasps> and that's not only women, it's men. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. 
Well, the, you know, the chain of command and all of that absolutely uh, kicks in, and you just don't you don't complain up, right? Right. Um, I know of one individual that they basically ran him out of the service so that he he couldn't bring a complaint because the powers that be conspired to don't, do him in. Don't want to hear that. Tom Murphy, clinician here at Retreat Behavioral Health, is our guest. We're talking about treating veterans. This is Recovery Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. I want to uh, reintroduce our guest. Tom Murphy is with us. He has been uh, in the field of behavioral health as a clinician for many, many years now, retired at one point, now back and working here at Retreat uh, Behavioral Health in their Lancaster facility in uh, in Ephrata. Um, in that in that capacity, he he has treated treated a lot of different uh, sorts of people, but we're focusing on his uh, his veteran uh, uh, clients. Uh, so, uh, Tom, we, I want to make I want to make this uh, point a, a little further with regard to uh, how people suffer uh, who do from their military service or. What what they had going on in their lives is exacerbated by the whole situation, and it can result in substance abuse and mental disorders. You mentioned that even in your experience as a young guy, you you weren't a scholar, you, you weren't interested in business. You were sort of at a young age going, now you know, what do I do? And so you chose the military, which which made a lot of sense for you, and it worked out fine. But a lot of people enter the military under that notion that. Things are really messed up, and the military military career will straighten it out for me. Yes. That's, well, it doesn't always work out well, does it? No, it doesn't. I mean, back in my day, the judge would send you to the Marine Corps. And then there was that, where you had the choice between going yeah. to jail or going to the Army. Yeah. So we're, we, so while we focus on the effects of, of military life, particular combat situations, as the cause of of a lot of the problems that veterans suffer from, alcoholism, substance abuse, mm-hmm. anger issues, and all that. Some of this stuff must clearly predate their military service. Absolutely. I mean, post-traumatic stress disorder. I played football in high school. It's just like, how many shots to the head did I get? It's just like, I have a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. I don't believe I got it in the military, but I, I definitely know that it got aggravated there. But you know, in terms of screening before they go in, what that could be a bigger problem. Yes, because it, I, I, what comes to mind for me immediately, and I'd like to ask you what you were experiencing as a clinician, is something like anger management, which is a big mm-hmm. problem, uh, particularly uh, for, for men, I would suppose. Prior to getting into the military, when you talk about screening, mm-hmm. that wouldn't be something that would preclude you. I mean, preclude you automatically from being a good soldier. They, in fact, might look at somebody who's edgy and, and ready to jump into the middle of something is like, okay, that's okay. Right, but they would screen the more severe cases. But it's just like it but may it, be a setup for a lot of the veterans. We, we were talking in my group about resiliency. You know, resiliency is about the ability to bounce back from traumatic events. Mm-hmm. Well, they're just like everybody else, but then we go into military and we get a lot of that trained out of us. So it's just like they're having, I'm looking at that as one of the major coping mechanisms or tried, tried to teach because resiliency is a skill that can be taught. Yeah, yeah. And it's how fast do you bounce back. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about your, your group, the group you did, the, any group that you deal mm-hmm. with, it, and particularly in the context of. Um, former combat veterans who are in there, uh, how big a problem is 
managing their anger in the context, you know, in the therapeutic oh. context, when they're in the room with you? Um, I had a situation right after I started. Um, a veteran is angry. He is over the top. He's ready to start taking names and go to work, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. He had been with through three different therapists. He ended up in my office. And I just looked at him and I said, rules of engagement. And he swore at me. <laughs> what did you mean by that? What did you well, mean? Well, what are the rules of engagement? I mean, these people have been in combat situations where there are people throwing bricks and rocks and bottles and calling them every name in the universe. And they're... So they react a certain way. Their training says stand down, do not react, do not engage unless fired upon. Yeah. Yeah, and, they, and, and when the context changes to civilian life. To civilian life, then it's, but it's sometimes just somebody knowing the right thing to say. We have uh, very easily um, accustomed ourselves, and, and correctly, to thanking people for their service. It's, it's, it's almost uh, a cliche. It is a cliche, but cliches are all true. That's how they become cliches. So I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't do that. But it, it is not enough. I mean, in your view now, you've been in the field for a while. You are a former military. The final uh, couple of minutes that we have here. Are, are, are we serving them well enough in this regard? Are we getting them the help they need? Are we telling them how to do it? Uh, what's your take on that? We're getting them the care that they need but sometimes it's not as fast as the individual thinks it should be done. I see that as a giant problem. I started going to the VA for my medical care January 2018, and I swear to God I've never had better medical care in my life. Um, thanking the veterans is nice. You know, people um, apparently, like Veterans Day, they can go out to different restaurants and they'll get a free meal. And it's just like, I'm, I don't want to play that game. I got out in 76, and it was not a nice time for veterans. You know, any time someone says, thank you for your service to me, I kind of get a little cranky. Yeah. And finally, we, we, we could do two more shows on what we need to do for veterans. Uh, homelessness is a huge problem among Absolutely. that population. Uh, we, I guess we have, we have to be much more aggressive in going out and finding who those people are. Um, and and getting them the kind of help. If there's a veteran out there listening now who uh, knows that there's something wrong but doesn't know what it is, call the VA. What, what's your first suggestion to somebody like that? Oh, to call the VA, to call call a fellow vet. Um, in my groups, we're finding that just the, the one-on-one interaction between them, we had a guy that didn't think he was eligible for benefits, but there had been a change in his status and he found out he was eligible for benefits, and that was a life-changing event for him. Yeah, well, we like to say on this program, no matter what group we're talking about, that uh, we want to remind you, uh, in fact, it's the central premise of the show, there's help out there. Absolutely. And so if you're a veteran who's suffering, uh, obviously, thank you for your service, but, you know, ask somebody for help because it's out there. Tom Murphy, thanks so much, Tom. We appreciate your time. Hope, Hope we can have you back again. Okay, thank you, Steve. And thank you all as well for joining us on Recovery Radio. It's again brought to you by Retreat Behavioral Health. As I said, if you or somebody you know is in need of help, they are available 24-7 to answer questions for you. 855-859-8810. That's 855-859-8810. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.
This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.